Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And if you're a fan of Soundboard, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. In a few minutes, we'll discuss this morning's announcement that UVA will now pay its full-time contracted workers at least $15 an hour. Plus, later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Golaska about a case in Norfolk to move one of its Confederate monuments. But first, I sit down with Charlottesville tomorrow to discuss the local elections coming up in just over a week. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Charlotte Renee Woods. Charlotte has been hard at work on a voter guide for all of the local elections in the area. Are you sleeping, Charlotte? <laughs> I will when this election's over. How many how many pages do you think you've written in the past couple weeks? Mm, each profile's between like 800, sometimes 1,200 words, and there are about 45 candidates, and I'm still trying to wrap up the last couple. There's also questionnaires below the profiles, so that way, if you're still a little torn on your district on who you want, you can compare and contrast the answers to the exact same questions. So let's start with the city council elections. We talked a lot about half of these candidates back in June around primary season, but it's been a little while. Can you tell us who's running? The people who came out on top for the city council Democratic primary were Michael Payne, Lloyd Snook, and Cena McGill, and they are now running as like a single cohesive ticket, and they are trying to ward off three independent challengers. One of those is Bellamy Brown, and then there's also Paul Long. This is his fourth run, and John Edward Hall. I believe this is his second run. Every candidate has said that affordable housing was one of their priorities. What are they proposing to mitigate the situation? The Democratic ticket and Bellamy Brown, they're all pretty solidly united in the stance that is going to take public, private, and nonprofit collaboration to address this issue. Uh, Michael Payne does take it a little step further. He suggests that it doesn't just end with redeveloping and enhancing public housing. He does note that not everyone qualifies for land trusts through nonprofits either. He also says that there needs to be some zoning changes that would allot for more duplexes and triplexes along with apartments. And then Paul Long and John Edward Hall, they actually see the landmark as a prime location for affordable units. They say that the city should use eminent domain to make that happen. So the first three names, like we said, are probably familiar to people from the primary season, the ones who are running as a ticket, Democratic ticket. Who are these three independents? So Paul Long is campaigning on public transportation advocacy. He's been in Charlottesville area for, I think, a little over 20 years. But he used to live in the Philadelphia area, and he was a constant advocate for public transportation there, Uh, especially at one point, a bus line that he relied on every day to get to work was about to be shut down, and he advocated to keep it because there were a lot of people that depended on it. John Edward Hall also wants to expand on public transportation, and he wants to design streetscapes that encourage more bike transportation as well. Bellamy Brown has a finance and nonprofit background that he wants to bring to council, especially in regards to taxes and spending. He thinks that there are areas that could be trimmed, but also areas that need bolstering, and he's sorting that out. So this brings us to a really interesting theme in all of these local elections, as well as the state house. Barring incumbents, there are very few new candidates running as Republicans, but quite a few independent challengers. This is the case in the race for the 25th District of the Virginia State Senate. Elliot Harding is challenging incumbent Cree deeds as an independent candidate. Who is Elliot Harding? 
He's a lawyer. He used to be associated with the Albemarle County Republican Party, but now he's firmly rooted in independence. And his uncle, who is a Republican sheriff, has actually endorsed Chan Bryant, who is the Democratic candidate for Albemarle County Sheriff position because Chip Harding isn't going to fill that again. That's an interesting dynamic there in that family. Harding says that there are stances that he feels he's further to the left and further to the right than Craig Deeds is. He definitely is campaigning on criminal justice reform. It's a huge part of his campaign. He supports cannabis legalization, more mental health dockets, ending cash bail, and expanding the use of body-worn cameras in law enforcement. And this is just to name a few things. Meanwhile, Cree Deeds has been very big on bipartisanship as well, and he wants to continue to tackle uh, gun safety and enhance mental health resources in the state. So currently, the Virginia State House is very nearly tied, with 19 Democrats and 21 Republicans over 40 seats. What does this Harding run as an independent mean for that in that situation? I think he's aware if he's elected, he's going to be the swing vote in a lot of situations Mm -hmm. at times when, you know, the Senate might get a little gridlocked on certain bills that could pass or fail. I think Harding is aware that if he's in that room, he he's going to be the wild card. Let's talk about the other local state Senate race. Amy Laffer is challenging incumbent Republican Bryce Reeves in the 17th district. What are the major issues in that race? Ooh, this is a really interesting district to also watch because the way that it sprawls, it touches parts of Albemarle County. Laufer's been canvassing really hard in the urban ring part, at, at least from my personal anecdotal experience that I've noticed. But it just stretches all the way to Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania, where her opponent, the incumbent Senator Bryce Reese, lives. It's also a district that's kind of purple. So the fact that Amy Laufer and Bryce Reeves pulled about the same numbers in the primaries this past June could be indicative of how split the district is. And that's ultimately it's going to depend on turnout on Election Day on seeing how this actually shakes out. Laufer supports criminal justice reform as well. She wants to champion health care in the General Assembly. Meanwhile, Senator Bryce Reeves actually shares a similar stance on health care. Um, he told me about some other things that he cares about and is supporting the Second Amendment. He's very proud of his uh, A-plus NRA rating. He wants to continue to roll out things that support veterans and military families. He also told me that he was part of the work to get background checks at gun shows, which previously went unrecorded when you had a private sale, because if you're selling your rifle, it's in your backpack, you know, and you're selling it to someone, you don't have access to the criminal background check system. So those sales used to go unrecorded. And presently, state police, they offer checks now. It is encouraged, but it is not required. I went to a gun show last year for a project I was working on and They would announce it on the speaker every so often, but it's ultimately up to people on if they want to do that or not. So the gun show loophole is a little bit narrower, but it'll be interesting to see who ends up addressing that further at General Assembly in this next session, especially pending how some of these elections shake out. Talking a little bit more broadly now, what other major themes have you noticed in all of these local races? So I think affordable housing is something that city and county candidates are realizing they have to address in this area. Regional transportation collaboration and expansion is something that's come up in a lot of races. Environmental impact in different ways in, you know, Charlottesville and Albemarle are, is both urban and rural. So there's very different ways that you can address like stormwater runoff. Charlotte's Ex- favorite topic. My favorite topic. <laughs> I, I nerd out about it so hard. And also with this part of the state having a lot of renewable energy companies here with solar and wind. Speaking of companies, I know that business and taxes was something that came up in a lot of local races on attracting businesses, keeping businesses, supporting local businesses. 
And then taxes featured pretty prominently in Board of Supervisors race. We have two Republicans challenging two Democrats for Whitehall and Scottsville. And the Republican candidates have talked about they feel there are some areas where they can they can trim some things and um, they're not in favor of raising taxes. Even incumbent Ann Malik is hesitant on where taxes can be raised to address county concerns. And then another thing that popped up, as I mentioned earlier, was health care and uh, redistricting reform is something a few candidates have mentioned. I think we all know what a Rorschach test some of these districts look like. I mean, it's how we have Amy Laufer and Bryce Reeves running against each other from opposite ends of the same district Two with completely vastly different, different concerns. Yeah, metropolitan areas. <laughs> yeah. Virginia is now considered to be a purple or even sometimes a blue state. How is Charlottesville related to that trend? Yeah, one of my favorite things about Virginia is it's a purple state. So when it comes to election season, you really don't know how a lot of things are going to shake out. And it it also keeps your candidates from being complacent because, you know, they got to really duke it out to, yeah. to get their seats or keep them. Charlottesville, the city, it's pretty much a one-party town. It's very Democratic. Um, I think it speaks to the fact that we have a lot of Democrats in the primaries, and then the other option is if you don't want to run as a Democrat and you want to highlight a little extra flair, you run as an independent but not as a Republican. And then the county is definitely bluish as well. I did a piece recently on the Scottsville district. There are definitely quite a sizable number of Republicans there that right now with a Democratic-controlled Board of Supervisors, they feel that their voices aren't being heard, their concerns aren't being represented. And so with Mike Callahan and Donna Price running, Mike is the Republican candidate. And depending on what part of the district you're in, you might see more of his signs. You might see people like really happy about him. And then you go in other parts of the same district and you've got people that are all jazzed up for Donna. Historically, what has turnout been like in local elections and state legislature elections? What are they expecting this year? We definitely had lower turnout this year in the primaries, which is expected because this is what politicos call an off-off election year. This year, there is no presidential race. There is no governor race. But the entire House of Delegates and Senate for General Assembly are up for grabs. And local and state politics really impact you. Candidates are certainly hoping for strong turnout. The turnout could be lower just because it's an off-off year, but some people I've spoken with say that because there's a presidential race next year, there's perhaps a bit of like early excitement, especially in Democrats who might be more inspired to hit the polls. A lot of the candidates mention August 11th and 12th at some point and talking about their candidacy. Definitely the events of those two days, August 11th and 12th, 2017, have reverberated into a lot of campaigns. For a lot of candidates, it's part of their inspiration because they feel like, I want to be part of the change here locally. I want to be part of the solution. And then for some of them, they like had critiques with how former city council or law enforcement dealt with things at the time. This is a Dillon rule state. So there's a lot of local government restriction where things have to be filtered up to General Assembly to be voted on. So definitely in regards to monuments... A lot of the candidates definitely feel like they want some legislation to pass through General Assembly that gives at least authority on what to do with monuments locally, if not eliminating the Dillon Rule. And then the the thing about the Dillon Rule is it is a hindrance when it comes to what to do about your monuments or setting, you know, living wage in your city. It's going to be different in in certain localities throughout the state. But then it can kind of be helpful when it comes to like business regulations, having Capital One in two different places, like in outside of Richmond and in Nova. Um, Stormwater regulation and keeping water quality throughout the state monitored. 
So like I said before, there are way more races than we have time to talk about in this 10-minute segment. But Charlotte, can you tell us a little bit more about the voter guide you've been working on? Yeah, I just hope that it is a helpful resource with Election Day approaching. As somebody else who's very busy, I understand that you you don't always have time to read every single news article or watch every single nightly segment that comes out from all the news outlets in town. So going into the polls, if you're still hemming and hawing between a couple candidates in your district or you don't know anything at all, like go to the voter guide, read the profiles, compare and contrast the questionnaires. Hopefully it will help you feel more informed when you go into those polls and you can be confident in your vote. Well, let's go ahead and end this segment like we do every week with on our calendars. What's on your calendar this week, Charlotte? This weekend, I am going to a climate reporting conference. So we're going to be connected to a lot of resources and data and get schooled a little bit more in this beat as it's unrolling in my newsroom. It's relatively new and it does intersect with government a lot. Also with elections coming up, I've got some stories beyond the voter guide coming out and that's my calendar for now. I'm going to keep it a little Lots vague. of writing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of writing and researching. We can look forward to data. more stories on stormwater management, maybe. Oh my God, that's my favorite. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me again. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU and TJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. So I was sitting here in the studio this afternoon putting together what was going to be our second segment when I and everyone else with any kind of UVA connection got an email from President Jim Ryan announcing that UVA had struck a deal with its contractors to pay every full-time contract employee a $15 an hour minimum wage starting in January, which is huge news. Back in March, the university had announced that it would start paying all of its full-time benefits-eligible direct employees a $15 an hour minimum wage, but that announcement had excluded hundreds of contract workers working in dining halls, for example, in the hospital and at the university. So we had a breaking news story to cover here on Soundboard. I got the opportunity to call up Hannah Russell Hunter. She's a fourth-year student at UVA who's been involved with the Living Wage Campaign for the past three years. My name is Hannah Russell Hunter. I'm a fourth year, and I've been involved with the Living Wage Campaign since I was a first year, and last year I served as president. Let's start with a little bit of background and context. How long has there been a campaign for living wages at UVA? So the first organizing around this issue began in the late 70s. There was a lot of change with integration coming into full effect, as well as co-education. And a lot of Black students especially were organizing around this issue. And in the early 90s, the Labor Action Group was formed. And then in the early 2000s, that transitioned into the living wage campaign that we now know today. So this is something that has been a conversation among students. It's something that students have been pressuring the university for for literally half a century. But the campaign has not been the living wage campaign and a consistently organized campaign around this until about 20 years ago. And what's the history of labor and compensation like at UVA? Well, you could start by going back to the Black enslaved laborers who built and ran this university from its inception. And then you could move forward to the fact that Virginia is a right-to-work state. And so 
large entities like the university have been able to get away with grossly underpaying their minimum wage workers, which includes overwhelmingly black workers, as well as recently a lot of workers coming from immigrant backgrounds. And so, yeah, I would say that the history of labor and compensation at UPA is a very long 200-year history of exploitation. So today there was a big announcement from UVA that its full-time contracted workers would be paid at least $15 an hour starting in January. What does the Living Wage Campaign think of this announcement? This is amazing news. Obviously, there's no way that we can be upset about this incredible progress on this issue that maybe just over a year ago we wouldn't have hoped to see any movement on, but it is a good start. That's, I think, our general consensus on this. $15 is not a living wage in Charlottesville. Our newly calculated number comes in at $18.19. So this is going to be a huge boost in pay, but again, it's not enough. And we are also a little concerned about the way that the university is very quickly co-opting these decisions to make it seem like they came from above rather than coming from decades of organizing by Black students, by community members, So that is something that we're a little bit concerned about, but overall, incredibly happy that contracted employees will also be getting paid the same as direct employees come January 1st. Currently, how much do contracted workers make? Is it the Virginia slash national minimum wage of $7.25 an hour? Numbers vary, and until recently, it was really hard to get anything beyond like anecdotal numbers just from talking to workers. The lowest can come in at around $9. And I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there was a contractor that was being paid the Virginia minimum wage, which is also the federal minimum wage of $7.25. What kinds of organizing has the living wage campaign been doing in the past couple of years? So you could go back to the 2006 Madison Hall sit-in, where around 10 students were arrested after several days sitting in front of the president's office demanding a living wage. There was a hunger strike that happened in 2012 where the students were putting pressure on Teresa Sullivan to pay a living wage. That was unsuccessful. And then this past year, we've definitely been trying to escalate and get a conversation going around living wage. And that culminated in a rally at the Board of Visitors meeting back in the spring of this year. So generally doing a lot of education, direct action, individual relationships with workers. How does this fit into the broader issue of economic justice in Charlottesville? Well, Charlottesville is a company town, so having a living wage will put more money in the pockets of low-income folks in Charlottesville. But there are other issues at stake, including the presence of developers that are creating these massive complexes for student housing that are really overpriced and really aren't livable by, say, like a family with several kids. So, yeah, the wage the university pays is just a smaller piece of a larger problem of gentrification and displacement within the broader Charlottesville community and in central Virginia. What's the next step in this issue for you all? Well, we're not going anywhere. That's (laughs) the first thing that I want to make really clear. $15, again, not a living wage in Charlottesville. We are going to be pushing for a continued increase in wages that is actually in keeping with inflation and the rising cost of living in Charlottesville. And we're also going to be looking into pursuing divestment from large contractors like Aramark 
which created this divide between direct and contracted workers in the first place. Aramark is heavily invested in the prison industrial complex. They have a history of serving really horrible food to prisoners in the private prisons that they contract in. So, And this is something that a lot of universities around the country have been doing very recently, especially following the nationwide prison strike that happened in August of last year. So this is something we're also going to be looking into. How can people support economic justice in Charlottesville? One way would be to support organizations like the Public Housing Association of Residents, the Living Wage Campaign. We use our privilege as students to be able to advocate on behalf of workers, but many workers are residents of public housing and they are often represented by the folks at the Public Housing Association of Residents. So that would be one really great direct way would be to donate to them or show out if they're having a rally or something like that. Also, YDSA is also doing a great campaign around Medicare for All and recently did a town hall about the scandal that happened at the beginning of the semester where a article came out about the really predatory lending practices that the UVA hospital takes part in. So that is another piece of this puzzle of economic justice in Charlottesville. Fortunately, there are folks that are trying to organize against this and, again, make UVA a more just place that can actually truly give back to the community. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, here on Soundboard, we talk about state news and politics, and as we do each week, we turn to our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He lives over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Today, I want to talk about the upcoming Virginia elections. November 5th is Election Day for all the state House and state Senate races, and we had somebody canvassing and campaigning here in Virginia that doesn't really live in Virginia much, but is well-known nonetheless. Take me through what's going on. Well, it just shows what a, a darling Virginia has become among national Democrats. Alec Baldwin, who is an actor and, of course, is probably more best known recently for his comic portrayal of Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, came down to help a number of Democratic candidates in, I think it was seven districts, to you know, canvas door-to-door. And that, to me, is a very smart way to sort of draw attention to the fact that Republicans in Virginia are kind of on the run this time around because of the reaction against Trump. I mean, aside from Alec Baldwin coming and stumping for some Democrats in Virginia, what are we thinking now? We're, we're really quite close, less than two weeks out from the elections. What's, what's your take? Well, I don't know. I mean, at the minimum, I think the Democrats will take the House. The Senate, a little bit harder. There's been kind of a, a, a conservative blogosphere. There's been a wave of stories saying, oh, it's not so bad for the GOP. Well, we'll wait and see. We'll see. I mean, it, it's still very close. I mean, it's not a, a shoo-in for the Democrats, but no shoo-in, of course, for the Republicans either. But I would say that you know, at least the House of Delegates, and I would bet small money that they'll take the Senate, too. Yeah, <laughs> small money. <laughs> and this is an important one, too, not just because of all the usual issues and array of concerns that come up before the state assembly, but also because uh, the 2020 census is going to happen, and who, whatever party is in charge during this particular session coming up will have a lot more to say about the redistricting that comes from it. Yeah, absolutely. That comes up in 2021. 
And it depends, of course. I mean, there, there are bills out to create an independent commission, which I think is a good idea rather than leaving it. Because both parties um, mess it up and self-deal and everything else. And it ends up in the court. You have to redistrict because judges say so. So we'll see what happens. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very important election on many fronts. It's a bellwether for Trump. It could change the entire course of legislation in the state. And it could, of course, affect redistricting. Well, speaking of state elections, there's a story in the Virginia Mercury, kind of a profile of Michael Bills, where he's this multimillionaire. He set out to counter the influence of Dominion, of course, the big electricity provider and energy company. Now he's the state's biggest campaign donor. What? What's the story here? Well, Mr. Bills, is he used to work for Goldman Sachs, which is a huge, huge investment banking company. And Mr. Bills has a hedge fund worth about a billion and a half, which is pretty big money. For some, he was in the Charlottesville area, and you know Charlottesville is known for attracting refugees from Wall Street with pockets full of money and big bank accounts. So he's the latest, and he's taken a big stand against Dominion, which was a big dominating force in political donations. And he created a pack called Clean Virginia, which uh, donates money and um, also puts out reports on the state of the energy and environmental situation in the state. Well, what's this uh, say about the race and about kind of the role of, of money in politics now? I think it's important because for years in the state, at least, at least you know, for the last decade or more, maybe a little more than a decade, but in Virginia, it seemed perfectly appropriate for conservatives such as Jim McLaughlin or the Koch brothers or whatever to, you know, intervene somehow in the state, either with direct political donations to candidates, or by setting up and funding think tanks that fund policies their way. And now you're seeing the opposite happen. You're seeing Mr. Bills is from Charlottesville, and he and his wife, uh, Sanja Smith, are both donating a lot of money. And we just mentioned Amanda Chase, for example, a Republican. He actually donated some money to her, uh, even though she's a Republican. And I think that's because she... um, was instrumental in changing the coal ash policies of Dominion to make them safer. But it's really an interesting development. A lot of conservatives are complaining about it, saying, oh, there's this big dark money from the Democrats now. But a few years ago, they weren't saying that about the uh, you know more conservative donors. So we'll see what happens. Well, moving on to a non-elections-related story uh, this morning, I want to talk about Norfolk uh, down there in Hampton Roads. Uh, Mark Herring, Virginia's attorney general, his office has weighed in on Norfolk's proposal to move a uh, an old Confederate monument, and he says that it should be okay. They're not going to enforce this uh, war memorials law when Norfolk presumes to move the statue. What's what's going on? How's this impact? Um... Okay, well, go back to August 2017. This is just after the Unite the Right debacle in Charlottesville, which, of course, the reason for it was ideas in Charlottesville to move a Robert E. Lee statue. Meanwhile, Norfolk City Council um, decided in reaction to that to move a Confederate memorial, just of a Confederate soldier, from downtown Norfolk to a nearby cemetery. And But you run into all these legal questions, because in 1904, the state decided that uh, counties could not move any Confederate statue or any statue without, you know, Richmond's permission, without the, you know, General Assembly's permission. And then in, in 1997, that was expanded to include towns. And this is a problem with both Charlottesville and Norfolk, because, you know, there, there are plenty of suits either happening or ready to happen, saying that if you move a Confederate statue, then it's violating state law. Well, what Mark Herring has done 
along with the Commonwealth Attorney for Norfolk, Gregory Underworld. They both said, well, you know, we believe that because of the retroactive nature of the city and town edition in 1997, that doesn't doesn't have any merit. And therefore, you know, move the statute. We're not going to prosecute. And so then people are complaining about that. So, and there are lawsuits in Charlotte, in Charlottesville, for example, that uh, if you move the statute, we're suing. So it's really still up in the air. It's, it's an interesting move, but it's another turn of the screw. Could this open the door to Charlottesville being able to move its statues? Well, that's something we don't know. I know that the AP has reported that a um, UVA prof- law professor, Richard Schreger, says it's not really clear that Norfolk can proceed. And so if it's Norfolk is the belt, belt, you know, the salient case here, then, uh, and it doesn't work out, then I don't see how Charlottesville, it helps Charlottesville at all. If Norfolk manages to move its statue and it's, the issue is moot, then Charlottesville can move its statue too. But I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not really qualified to, to really give an opinion on that. It gets murky, and sometimes it feels like these uh, these bits of, of bronze have more, uh, more rights than the people around them. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good point. And, uh, and the other thing that, you know, look at the timeline here. You know, the law comes in in 1904, which is the height of the start of Jim Crow. And that's years after the Civil War ended. And, and then you go through Reconstruction, and then you have uh, the white backlash. And then for some reason, I, I wasn't in Virginia in 1997, but, you know, there's some backlash there to protect it, to extend the law from counties to include towns and cities as well. And that's like years and years later. So it's kind of rewriting history as we go along. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for sharing this morning. Okay, take care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. And if you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Justine Baird. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM.